In 64 BC, a Roman general named Pompey conquered Jerusalem. But his ultimate conquest was when he entered the temple of the Jews. He'd heard that the temple of the Jews contained in the back portion an image of the Jewish God. As a matter of fact, there was even a rumor that this Jewish God was the head of a donkey. To conquer the God is to conquer the people. So Pompey, with pomp and circumstance, entered the temple where only the high priests were allowed to be to find the image of this Jewish God. And you may know the rest of the story. There was no image. Never has been. The only thing in the temple were articles assigned by God that pointed to him. Candlesticks altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, where it was said that God's special presence rested between two angelic beings shaped in gold. This is typical of the Bible. It's typical of the God that we worship. There is no image for God. Throughout the Scripture, the way God manifests himself. He manifests himself by his mighty acts. The people of God in this passage had already seen his mighty acts, deliverance across the Red Sea, the destruction of all the gods of Egypt through the plagues. They were about to see more and more of his mighty acts. That's a representation of God, not an image. As a matter of fact, God said, I'll give you a representation of myself. I'll lead you. I'll lead you by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. Not me, not my image, my presence. That understanding of God and his mighty acts that the people of Israel had seen repeatedly is what makes this story in the Old Testament absolutely amazing. You see, according to the story, just before they arrived at Sinai where God delivers the law to Moses, just before that they had entered into their third month away from Exodus. Hardly Three full months had transpired, and Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and stays there for 40 days. And while Moses, in the shadow of three months of incredible, mighty acts of God, is on the top of the mountain, the people of God say, where is this guy Moses? It's a derisive phrase. We don't even know who he is, where he is, what good he is. All we know is he's not here. Where is this guy, Moses? Let's make our own gods to lead us. Really? Let me put it in context. It would be as though, for us, we had witnessed the mighty acts of God throughout the summer months and then by the end of the first semester, we shaped ourselves our own God. Out of gold, a cow. That's the story. It is amazing that they could 
stoop to this level. As a matter of fact, how it happened, you heard in the story. Aaron said, okay, I hear you're clamoring. Give me all your gold and silver. Your gold, your silver, your stuff. And I'll make a god for you out of it. And he crafted that gold idol called the golden calf. He shaped it with their stuff, and they bowed down and worshiped to it. The text says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. It's a curious phrase. We're not even quite sure what to make of it. These are your gods. After all, there was only one golden calf, so far as we can understand. And previous to that, there was only one God, Yahweh, who had led them this far through the wilderness. We're not sure why the plural. Maybe because the calf represents many gods. Some might say that the calf itself was worshipped as if it were God. As a matter of fact, the text leads us to believe that with a few of its words. But on the other hand, the text also says something that leads us to believe something a little different about the calf. Not that they were worshiping it as a God, but as a representation of God. Remember in the text, Aaron, after making the calf, says, tomorrow we will have a festival to the Lord. After I've crafted you a new God or a new idol, now we're going to have a festival to the Lord. What must that mean? Perhaps it's the first sign of what we call syncretism in the nation of Israel, where they added to the God, Yahweh. He's a great God. He's done great things, but we need some more. We need some more gods. And so the golden calf, or perhaps, as some say, the idol was exactly that, an idol that represented Yahweh. No matter how you interpret what the golden calf was, here's the bottom line. God is outraged. He shakes in fury, so to speak. You people who were delivered by my almighty, invisible hand, have crafted your own God. Moses, wipe them out. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God relents to a certain extent. And Moses goes down the mountain. When he arrives, he does an interesting thing. He takes the tablets that God had inscribed with his own hand and throws them on the ground, breaking them into pieces. We might look at this and say, oh, there you go. Moses is angry. He had a right to be. But there's more to that image. It's just not the anger of Moses, which he had a right to be angry. It was the covenant. It was the agreement between God and the people. And Moses takes these tablets and symbolically, by throwing them down on the ground, says you're not even going to follow them, and so you're not worthy of them. The covenant is over. But we know God, the gracious God that he is, he renews that covenant. He once again gives them the law. Moses inscribes them this time. Because God is good. But along with his forgiveness and his mercy 
comes right alongside it. Never forget this. Mercy is not incompatible with judgment. Right alongside his mercy, which he demonstrates to the people for years to come, is his judgment. The part of the text that we did not read, God tells Moses. I'd like to leave that part out, but I can't. God tells Moses to instruct what become the Levites to strap on a sword and go throughout the people and execute them. And on that day, 3,000 people were executed by the direct command of God. That's the story. In a nutshell, can't gloss over it. That's what happened. What do we do with it? We obviously know it's a story about idolatry. We obviously know that there's application here for us. I have three points to apply to us with a whole bunch of subpoints, but three points. First is this. The story reminds us that we must acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God. This one who is unrepresentable by an image is also uncontrollable by us. I really am made uncomfortable by such passages. They make me squeamish. I want to say, God, why? And I have. But at the end of the day, I'm called quite simply to worship this God that I do not fully understand and can never control. And I must submit. Second point of application. Not only should we acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God, this narrative calls us to remember the incessant, deceptive nature of idolatry. Philosophers and theologians for centuries have suggested that the heart of humanity is incurably religious. That is to say, we're born with the understanding of God. As fuzzy it may, as it may be, it's deeply embedded in our consciousness. His image stamped deeply within us. And that is an incredible blessing, a gift from God. Not something we dream up, but something that is. Scripture also tells us the difficult side of that blessing. The difficult side of that blessing is that the human heart, which is incurably religious, is also, because it's incurably religious, an absolute idol factory. 
we will find a God to worship, even if it is not the only true God. It is inevitable because we're incurably religious. I think those two themes converge in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 1. In verse 18, Paul puts it this way. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since that what may be known about God is plain to them. It's embedded in their DNA because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of God's, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was made so that man are without excuse For although they knew God, they neither glorified him, these people, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Because they're so incurably religious. When they reject the one and only God, they create others. Therefore, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. For even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Do you see what's common in that text? God is indelibly stamped in every human heart. And when he's rejected, he will inevitably, that man, turn to another God. And in this text, the other God is himself. He turns inward. They turn inward, indulging themselves in their own flesh. It's the extreme opposite of a holy God. It's stunning, really. Idolatry is incessant. That means it always pesters us. It never leaves us alone. It's always around the corner to snare us. And it comes in so many forms. And it's so deceptive because we don't even see it or name it. I want to give you several quotes. Hang with me here, will you? They relate to idolatry. One quote from G.K. Chesterton, he's much more concise than me. Beautiful language. He just puts it this way. 
when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. Why? Because we're incurably religious and our hearts are an idol factory. A contemporary author, Richard Keyes, puts it this way, an idol need not be a full-size replacement for God, for nothing can be. We become increasingly attached to it, this idol, until it comes between us and God, making God remote and his commandments irrelevant and unrealistically prohibitive. These gods that we hang on to defame the God and the word that God gave. In this society, our idols tend to be in clusters, he says. They are inflationary. Having short shelf lives, we just have them and then we dispense with them and we pick up another idol. They have short shelf lives, they change, they adapt, and they multiply quickly as if by mitosis or cell division. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. Anything can be a substitute for God. Or how about this quote? This one actually comes from Jeremiah. You know him better? Speaking about the idols that he saw around him, he said this, like a scarecrow in a melon patch, they cannot walk, those idols. Do not fear them. They must be carried around because they cannot walk, for they can do no harm, and they can do no good. You know what Jeremiah is saying there? In effect, he's saying, they made them. They control them. Their gods are an extension of themselves. Why do you need to fear them? They need not be feared, and they can't do any good. Another author, Oz Guinness, puts it this way. In the biblical view, anything created, anything at all that is less than God, and listen carefully, and most especially the gifts of God, can become idolatrous if relied upon inordinately until it becomes a full-blown substitute for God, an idol. Just one more quote. This one really um, goes to the heart of where we live a lot of times in our culture, even in the church, especially in the church. Thomas Oden points out the idolatry of relevance and newness with these words. We have blithely assumed that in theology, that's the doctrine of God, just as in corn poppers, and electric toothbrushes and automobile exhaust systems that new is good, newer is better, and newest is best. And that's not true. There are some ancient, historical, disturbing truths that come from God that must not be changed. And to try to change them, to make them new, destroys both their content and us. Um, 
I don't know why I get all these passages. Dan got a better one last week. I got this one. But here it is. You know, it wasn't just a problem for the people of Israel, right? And it wasn't just an Old Testament problem. It was a New Testament problem, too. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John, when he wrote one of his three epistles, the first one, he wrote about all kinds of things that he thought the people of God needed to be warned about. I want to warn you about this. Don't get off track there. And he talked about a variety of things. And you know what his last words were in the first epistle? My children, beware of idols, period. That's the way he ended his first epistle. Because they're incessant, they're deceptive, and they sneak into the cracks of our very life, almost unrecognized. They can be anything. They can be money. They can be people. They can be politics. I know we're all sick of it right now. They can be influence. I mean, your desire to have influence. The idol... It can be something as simple as security and control. I didn't make that one up. Actually, it was in the text. The people said, where's Moses? He's been gone 40 whole days. Our plan is falling apart. Our well-designed scheme to get across the desert with God, it's not there anymore. We've got to seize control of our agenda. Give us another God. So idols can come out of a heart that wants to control. This is especially true for those of you, sorry I target you, who are good planners who want to have all your ducks in a row who don't want anything out of line it can become your own form of idolatry why? because look at the scripture God's always shaking things up he's always messing with your plans He's always putting you in a position where you feel completely out of control, so you're forced to completely trust him. Isn't that part of the narrative? It is. We could go on and on about a variety of idols, but I stop. To name the final and the third point, I know you thought I had ten, but there were only three. For you note takers, the first one was we have to acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God. The second one was we remember the incessant, deceptive nature of idolatry. You know what the third one is? <laughs> it might surprise you. This story, it reminds us to take a risk of love. Not just this story, but the story about God. Oh, by the way, I'm going to retract my earlier comment. Actually, there was one time where God gave us an image of himself. 
It was a human one. It was fleshly. It was Jesus. And he died for us. Can you see the risk involved? That God would take the most likely scenario of idolatry, which is ourselves, and identify with that self? Where Romans 1 said the greatest idolatry is turning inward on your own body, God says, okay, I'll take a body. I'm going to come as a man, and I'm going to call you because you've seen me, not only to follow me, but to look into the eye of the other and to see the image of God. You know what God is like? He's like Jesus. You know what God is like? He walks with you and talks with you and loves you and is willing to die for you. And he did it in a body. What an incredible risk of love. What's our responsibility? To return that love through this. Surrender. And that too is an incredible risk of love. God, I know who you are. You're my savior. You're my only hope. And for that reason, I surrender everything to you. Here's my money. Here's my time. Here's my career. Here's the people that I love. They're yours, God, not mine. How does that happen? I suppose in a lot of ways. But I've got just one simple exercise for us this week. Perhaps the starting point is to start every day with a simple prayer of surrender. And quite literally, think of something that you hold very, very dear. And figuratively, put it in your hands, raise it high, and say, God, I surrender. Maybe that's a start. Maybe idolatry will lose its grip on us because we're all susceptible to it. It's a risk of love, one worth taking a risk of love that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, being our only Savior. We acknowledge with words right now, we do it every Sunday, that you're the only God, that we worship you and you alone. And the songs seem so beautiful, and, and well, emotionally, we're so attached, and we really mean it when we say it. And, and then Monday comes. And the crevices of our heart, the idols just get in there and become a wedge. There's so many of them. They're so incessant. They just keep coming. They're so deceptive, we hardly see them. But Lord, awaken our conscience to those things that we hold more dear to ourselves than we do our love for you. And give us the courage 
and give us the love because it takes love to surrender them to you this week as we walk with you. We pray that you will shape our hearts, destroy our idols, and make us free. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The ultimate expression of um, God's love for us obviously comes in Jesus Christ who became a human being and then died for our sins. Uh, took that incredible risk of giving us his image in the face of a man. And because uh, he bled and died for us, we receive not only forgiveness of sins, but we receive eternal life, which is not natural to us since we all die. And when we celebrate communion, the first Sunday of the month, that's what we celebrate. It's also the first Sunday of the month that we recognize that we have no ownership over this table at the Evangelical Community Church. It's not our table. It's the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, it's open to any of you who call Jesus Christ your Lord, no matter what your denominational background. If Christ is your Lord, we invite you to partake of this meal. Um, in the second service, we take communion by way of intention, which means you come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you eat and drink in remembrance of me, for when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks for this bread and cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you sent Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. That Christ, as the Scripture said, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. An impossible proposition, Lord, that we might become the righteousness of God. But as we uh, approach communion, we pause uh, momentarily to prepare our hearts through private confession. And perhaps in this moment, even before the week begins on Monday, to surrender something to you. We do this in the silence of our own hearts. Lord, we are so grateful for the grace of confession. It is a grace. It's not a burden. We thank you for the delight of sins forgiven. And we remember in the words of John that to those who confess their sins, you are faithful and just to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And based on that promise, Lord, we can declare together that our sins are forgiven. Amen. The last bit of instruction is that we uh, prefer that you come from the back, the back rows, as soon as the servers are ready, uh, row by row, and exit out the side aisles if you can uh, as you participate in communion. I'll ask the servers to come forward at this point. <laughs>